You are listening to Life Sci AI, the podcast series. Building on series one, we bring you series two, where we are looking to bring you more innovative and amazing ways that AI is being used in the life science industry across Europe. Enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome back to another episode of LifeSci AI, the podcast series. Um, this episode is going to be focused around BIOS Health, and we have the pleasure of being joined by CSO and co-founder Oliver Armitage of the company. Um, so, I mean, I'll hand straight over to yourself because um, I know that you're, you're keen to, to share a little bit about the company and then we can go into a little bit more about yourself, your role, and, and sort of your journey and how to get to, to BIOS as well. Great to meet you today, Nick, and uh, thanks for thanks for inviting us to talk about BIOS and um, the sort of exciting new area of what can be done with the nervous system and, and bioelectronics. Awesome. So you, as you said, it's, it's nervous system, bioelectronics, it's forward thinking, and it's a really interesting application of AI um, that, that you guys have, and, and, non, and not one that, that's really um has a major competitor let's say in the market at the moment um just keen before we delve into that piece and laying out sort of what is currently on the market product wise and medical device wise and what you're looking to, to move it forward to be keen to know the foundations of bars though um yeah. like why did you start how did it come about and, and things like that definitely so um yeah bios we make ai powered neural interfaces um, for reading and writing neural signals um, and, and using that information to, um, uh, to, to develop therapeutics and to, to deliver therapeutics. So uh, when you read neural signals, you're reading natural biomarkers of the body communicating with um, the brain, communicating with organs in the body about what they should be doing and receiving sensory information. Um, and so when you read that information and decode it into neural biomarkers, you get... Um, very sort of powerful new biomarkers of activity and um, and when you when you sort of stimulate or when you when you change those signals or add new signals um you're you're delivering a therapeutic you're changing the function of an organ to make it healthier and so um i sort of see like you know what we do with uh, neural biomarkers it's, it's kind of like a live version of genomics it's like a new type of data that's like stored and in this case flowing around the body. It's like the body's nerve, um, the body's the nervous system is like the body's internet, right? The, the genome is like the hard drive. Um, the genome like sits there and it's, it's all written down and you go reference information from it when you need it. The nervous system is like this live transmission of information in real time between the brain and the organs. And um, if you read that and you decode it in real time using this kind of like special form of AI that we work on, then you can uh, use it for just a, a whole different branch of precision medicine. Okay, and so where did like BIOS come from though? Was it a conversation you've had um, at, a, at a pub or at a, at a publication, like a, a yeah, so, research um, meeting or? My, I mean, um, my co-founder and I, we're, we're, both, um, we're both in uh, the University of Cambridge here as academics. Yeah. Uh, I've been um, uh, sort of how you connected biology to engineering materials like the really like how you just connect these things together and make them happy and live together in the long in the long term um working mm -hmm. in the area and then and he was in sort of computational neuroscience and, and ai right. and um uh yeah so like we had always 
driven I, i've always been driven towards making uh like neural interfaces a technology that exists in the world they're they're, they're a powerful technology in in uh in the brain they look like brain computer interfaces and in um the sort of peripheral nervous system they they look like using genomics for precision medicine and so they're just a really powerful technology that has sort of existed in a scientific concept and it's obviously exists in science fiction but um is a really really powerful thing to use in the real world now and so i'd kind of always been driven towards wanting to bring that to reality um and the and that means that um so we started bios uh in 2015 in order to bring like real-time neural interfaces into kind of like real real world use right like actually take them out of being this kind of like science project that gets done in like 10 patients funded by an american military grant through to something that is used to treat you know hundreds of thousands millions of real people who have you know all these diseases that can benefit from this technology and so um yeah that, that was the kind of the ethos behind bars when we started the company in 2015 um mm. and uh yeah now we're sort of seeing uh various various sectors pick up on this direction as, as like an important uh, an important new technology direction an important new um just treatment modality in medicine i see and so did you always want to be a co-founder um or think like i want to i need to or was it a case of for me to achieve what i want to achieve the vehicle is a company um i always wanted to make technology that was um uh like that that impacted the real world that like actually like that came out of an academic lab and um and was was large and scalable and and you know the vehicle to do that is a company so um uh yeah i i i i always wanted to get this technology out into the world and you know it only it only lives in the world on its own it only becomes a thing that multiple people and you know tens of hundreds and thousands of people use mm. if it becomes a commercially um you know commercially valuable commercially scalable business that's what that's what gives it sustaining otherwise it's otherwise it's reliant on those you know american military grants so mm. um so yeah I, I always knew i wanted to make a company where this stuff became widely used in medicine uh, i i used to think that i would be an academic for 30 years until the technology <laughs> And then once it worked, then you would like spin it out to become a company. But um, just like market trends that were happening in 2015, 2016 um, meant that, you know, my co-founder and I realized that actually now was really the right time to be at the forefront of this wave. And um, I think we've seen that with the proliferation of neurotechnology companies in the last two years. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting you picked up on those trends, I guess, before the, the recent more acceleration of, of trends. But I guess why did you pick you picked up that you wanted to put this application onto a medical field and a medical area? Why is that? Um, there's so much need. Like, um, I mean, if we just take heart disease, like cardiovascular diseases don't receive really any new drugs. Like the major drugs that are the first line therapy drugs that are used to treat cardiovascular disease were discovered in the 60s, right? ACE inhibitors, yeah. blockers. These uh, these are all 60s, 70s molecules, and they're they're still the like the first line of molecules that you get in response to worsening heart failure and, and cardiac diseases of 30 30% deaths. So um the the fact that there's just 
there is a huge amount of need in medicine for these kinds of technologies. And so yeah. when you think about a neural interface needing to exist in the world, if I have the choice between working on making it implant in a brain so that I can control my phone better versus putting it in a nerve such that someone can have an extra 20 years of life with heart failure, to me, that choice seems like there isn't a choice there, right? It's really obvious yeah. where you put this technology first. And that doesn't mean it won't be put in the brain for you know, <laughs> all, all the amazing BCI applications afterwards, yeah. but you still treat people first, right? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, okay, cool. So just in terms of, you, you mentioned there the cardiovascular piece, and I know that's an area in which you guys focus on at Bars, but, and the first line, you know, the beta block is 1960s, that kind of stuff. So paint the picture for us pre-BIOS of what the landscape for treating these diseases that you're looking to uh, change the treatment for, what it was be before you guys came came through. Um, so, so right now, uh, so the the first the first point the thing to point out is that um, the heart is directly heart like like all your organs is directly controlled by your nervous system, right? You have this kind of like um, web of nerves coming down from your neck and your spine wrapping all the way around the heart um, that are that are telling that are really sort of like controlling the different phases of heart function and how hard to, to be um, and, and and this kind of like basic uh, just physiology of how the the neurocardiovascular system functions is is what beta blockers target right uh, the, the if you just take that word apart beta blocker the beta is the beta receptor. It's a neural receptor from the nerve onto the cardiac muscle cell. Um, and, and the blocker is because it's trying to block a signal hitting the beta receptor, right? So a beta blocker is blocking a neural signal from hitting the heart. Um, and the so it's, it's always been known that this was a really positive or really powerful way of, um, of treating cardiovascular disease. That's, that's what a beta blocker is. Um, it blocks the bit of your nervous system that is telling your heart to beat harder and faster, which is what causes it to basically break down over time because it's working in overdrive. Um, and, and if you intervene on the nervous system higher up, then you can uh, start to just change those signals at their root and get a more kind of like a more nuanced, more precision management of cardiac function. So sort of to answer your question, um, cardiovascular treatment right now, there are sort of um, four or five first line drugs that will get that will get used for someone who has worsening heart failure. Uh, beta blockers and ACE inhibitors are two of the first. Um, these will get used to sort of lower your cardiac function and try and dilate your blood vessels. Um, this uh, this and then and then that patient is sort of managed primarily through like very arm's length observations, like how fast do they walk for six? Like sorry. Um, how far do they walk in six minutes is sort of a measure of how well their heart function is doing. And they'll be recommended alongside their, um, their drugs. They'll be recommended to, to exercise and eat better and try and like bring down their overall, like how much work it takes to just move them around in the world in order to allow their heart muscle to not work as hard. Right. And that's how you manage someone with cardiovascular disease. And then, and then you have all the variety of ways in which like something's really gone wrong. Like you've had a full heart attack and part of the heart is dead. Um, you've like, you've had a cardiovascular aortic rupture. There's all, and there's all these like sort of um, 
small like injuries that then happen after you've had this worsening of heart function. And for those, you have treatments like pacemakers, you have treatments like stents, you have treatments like full valve replacements if it's really bad, um, like full, full um, uh, sorry, full, full ventricle replacements like a ventricular pump. Um, like those are end of life extension devices. Um, so yeah, the, the management of cardiovascular function now is basically give some molecules to try and like put the heart, make like make the heart's work easier and make it work less hard, and then try and get the person through like just you know behavioral change to to be healthier. Um, what we're doing and and what we're part of is a um, a sort of a revolution of using the nervous system to directly change what the heart is doing. So by by uh, the, the the therapeutic implants we're developing for cardiovascular disease via a sort of very um, a very like minimally invasive procedure where a device is like like a pacemaker where a device is like slipped in under a um, yeah. in under the skin. Um, you know, a pacemaker can be done in half an hour to forty five minutes in an outpatient clinic. Um, uh, so yeah, the device is like slipped in under the skin. Um, you then put some electrical signals directly onto the nerves, which can control what the heart is doing in real time. And that um, and that 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 device is delivering its medicine. It's delivering its therapeutic as the form of an electrical signal to the nerve. Um, and in doing so, it's defined in software. And that means that uh, you know on day one, when you have um, your first cardiovascular problems then um, the, you know, the device is really just doing something quite light touch to keep things um, in a good space. And if things get worse, the doctor can change the algorithm, uh, update, like tell you like, oh, you need a slightly, a slightly, uh, slightly better version of this software or a slightly you know, more intense version of the medicine. Mm. And, and that can get updated like, like changing an app on your phone. So um, by, by bringing the management of cardiac function into the realm of software, you allow it to leverage all of that kind of like uh, quick, um, you know, update via a new form of medicine where you come in, the doctor yeah. says, oh, you need slightly more and they turn it up and then everything, and then, and then you go home and, and that's managed. <laughs> awesome. So it's like, I know every time you get like an iOS update or something, <laughs> it just yeah. updates you through. Exactly. And, and, you know, and that's where you, that's where you start then thinking about other diseases. So um, yeah. the nerves that, you go and put that device on in order to control cardiac function those nerves you've got these um you have these big like compound trunk nerves that have lot that they they branch out to loads of different places the vagus nerve and the, yeah. and some of the um uh nerve locations in the upper spinal cord um when you go to those places you're actually interacting with signals controlling lots of different organs so you start out with an algorithm that's like trying to change your cardiac function um but um in but but the algorithm can be updated to also bring in control of inflammation or control of blood pressure or control of um uh sort of something like a wheezing or a respiratory response and uh, specifically bronchoconstriction um like like an asthmatic response and so because you're interacting with a um because that device which first gets given for cardiovascular disease um is interacting with signals that are mixed up with all these other signals controlling all these yeah. other organs and you're you're you know you're selectively trying to change the cardiac ones so that you can treat cardiac disease but you change yeah. the software and you decide you also now need to you know help with high blood pressure or you need to help with an inflammatory disorder um, and that means that these kind of um a device like this can be like a a real 
a real platform for a bunch of different therapies because yeah. it, lev- it, it uses the fact that biology has this very centralized structure. So if you interact with it where it's centralized, you get to change lots of things at the same time, as long as you really understand what's going on with like <laughs> that's where, you know, AI and neural biology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where does this sit in the body? So it's like so centralized, right? So where would this device sit in, in someone? Um, so like in the neck the, is where the main... Um, uh the main nerves are which is like so the the main place a pacemaker gets put is here under the clavicle that's where the like the, yeah. the metal sort of capsule goes um but but really what you're trying to get to is a couple of nerves which are just under the skin uh, in the neck, um and are being used for um and, and are sort of flowing down to the body in fact the yeah. you know the, the the star trek like vulcan death grip about putting someone to sleep is based on the fact that you're pushing on someone's vagus nerve yeah, to like yeah, yeah you know, make them, um, make them, uh, make them fall asleep quickly. I see. So right, it's the nerves, like the major pathways for the, for the body you, you put it in. It's almost, so you, this device sits kind of like a, like a filter between the two, between the signals. Uh, and then it kind of can be long-term, like an akin to an Android platform an iOS, or an iOS platform where the doctor is implementing different software algorithms like an app. And then that sits at that person's personalized medical care. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, right right now, some of those devices look like pacemakers where they're sort of a, a capsule and a wire, but um, there are there are other versions of them that are, you know, I, I'm quite getting quite close to clinical use. Other versions of that hardware, which are much smaller things that, you know, could even go in through a needle and just sort of sit oh, really? right there alongside the, um, wow. right there alongside the nerve, just be like a little, um, like a, you know, like, like something about the size of a pill that kind of goes along in and, and sits, sits next to the nerve and, and uh, apply some electrical signals to it. And what that means is that you have this like, you have this like quite, they're reasonably minimally invasive now and they're getting they're getting even smaller and even less invasive. Um, and, and once you have that piece of hardware, as you said, it's like having like an Android platform. And that means that the patient experiences getting their new therapy, like getting a new app, like getting a new piece of software. Right. Yeah, but that's super cool. Yeah. When you when you take it out of the realm of electronics and into the realm of software, you kind of you get to leverage this whole ecosystem of yeah offer yeah. updates and changes and this like nice patient UI that you know the tech industry has pioneered. Yeah, for sure. And so the the tech behind it then, and that's what's actually sitting in it. Like it must be as it must they say it's a very small piece of kit. So what do the algorithms sit on? Is it the hardware inside it? Is it using, using the cloud? Like, give us a bit of a, as much as you can without giving out your secrets. Yeah, and, and the answer is, you know, they sit at every level, right? So like right. you have um, you have a piece of metal that is uh, recording the electrical signal of the nerve. And so you're, you're recording this like neural data as it flows past at like 30,000 times per second. It's like having like a super high res camera on the nerve mm. from an electrical perspective. Um, and uh, and then and then when you want to change a signal, it applies a bit of current to the nerve to either block a natural signal that you don't want to happen or to, or to add a new signal in. Um, and so that, that's kind of what it looks like. It's like the the most like detailed contact level. Yeah. Um, you know, some of your some of your signal you're processing like really live in real time, like on like very um, optimized hardware, like right on the device. Uh, yeah. and, and some of it's being transmitted like to the phone or via the phone up to the cloud and being retrained overnight and, and changing back to you. So this kind of there's algorithms running at like all three levels, right? There's the, the super, super close to the 
device there's the medium size and then there's like the cloud okay cool and then long term then will this be well like will gps need to learn how to use this then and and deliver it like is that going to be gp care long term or doctors care or well i mean uh i think new technologies that require significant amounts of training with clinical populations are you know very rarely successful and the reason and, and so because so people the the job of the manufacturer is to make something very very easy for the the doctor right yeah. uh, right now you if you have for instance a pacemaker the um the doctor has like a they there's like a sort of a wireless device that that you sort of pop on your chest and it connects to it and then the doctor through a sort of a, a screen can like change the settings of it that's a reasonably clunky way of doing uh, mm. the kind of thing we're talking about which really can just be done as wi-fi over the air so um for in terms of like how does someone learn how to use it uh it's really just like like interacting with an app right they you know they're yeah. saying they see some they see some information about right now um the device the bias device is detecting that you have a neural signal to do with um like worsening heart failure and then like what kind of what kind of electrical medicine do you want to apply to 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 halt that and you know the doctor will, at that point the doc that's where the doctor sort of has input and choice yeah. um and they pick something and they pick like a, a like a dosage right they pick a, a prescription yeah. and they pick a prescription as part of their training um and then and then you go home with that and then they can sort of change that prescription so as long as like we as the um as the manufacturer provide that to the the doctor in this kind of like ecosystem that they already work in right like yeah here is a type of medicine that you prescribe in an amount here's the recommended dosage for an average patient of x body weight and then here's the ranges like that's um, that's what they do now and that's what they're they're good at understanding they learn how to they all the time doctors learn how to dose new medicines um yeah. i think take it into an entirely different realm where they have to start like setting electrical parameters then you have issues and that's what yeah what unfortunately what some of the current pacemaker modifications look like is they they expose the doctor to a piece of technology understanding they don't really need to look at what they need to look at is dosage and dosage and disease oh i see so you would you would see that the dosage would just be linked to the algorithm and the software for that for that particular patient okay and on the device itself then how much is it geared towards like the therapy of the person and, and treating the and the 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 disease and how geared is it to actually learning about the disease and the research side of things? So, um, sort of intrinsically, the device or the sort of the systems naturally do both, right? So, like the same piece of metal that is recording the nerve at thirty thousand times a second is the same piece of metal that applies the the small amount of current to change something. So, so you're just intrinsically doing both at the same time um right now what we are doing as a company is we are using it um more in its research setting in order to um uh like discover new neural patterns that are related to different disease types and in doing so like discover where there are opportunities to apply electrical medicine or opportunities to apply molecular medicine to be honest like basically using that neural data to drive discovery of new therapeutic areas while also developing like our core therapeutic area which is cardiovascular disease so we right now we're primarily using it for research in lots of diseases and therapy development in one of these 
I see. And if you, what sort of major partnerships do you have on the research side of things that you might want to share? Um, so, like, we have a sort of major contract with the National Institute of Health in the US, and they're um, uh, they they have a sort of consortium of researchers working on um, peripheral nerve um, uh, therapies uh, yeah. in, in lots of disease areas, and and we're 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 we're, we're partnered with them delivering some um delivering like tools to like better target the types of waveforms that some of those researchers who are experts in different diseases um yeah. and their relationship to the nervous system uh use so we're, we're sort of we're doing that right now from a from a tools perspective uh we have a a, a couple of other partnerships uh that i can't really talk about yet in specific disease areas um with more sort of you know pharmaceutical and device type companies but yeah i know awesome cool and when you're doing this, the research part, and you're developing the algorithms for the cardiovascular piece as well, what are the major, I don't know, challenges or restrictions that you find that you may have thought, actually, I wasn't, I didn't think this would be a challenge or a problem, or I didn't realize we'd have to consider this restriction or this implementation for it? Um, uh, I think one of the main things that we sort of go through is just sort of how to, uh, how much of the technology we really want to, um, like when we talked earlier about like putting algorithms at like different levels of processing, there's a lot of technology technology development and just like engineering time and making something like super lightweight and efficient. And then so um, the sort of instinct is to want to run like absolutely every model you've come up with live in real time. Um, and then <laughs> trying to, like, <laughs> which of the new research models are going to get run like in the cloud like at night time or like on which ones you're actually going to prioritize putting yeah like you know um embedding down onto a device uh because there's uh i think in a, in a sort of in that discovery setting when we're using it as like a platform for when we're using our kit our sort of hardware and our software stack as a platform for like research discovery um there's a there's a temptation to do everything in real time. There's a temptation to like yeah. see if I can uh, control you know a breathing symptom in real time at the same time as an inflammatory signal. I, I didn't really need to do that. So uh, <laughs> like just constrained engineering time about how we uh, how we prioritize the um, the things that we have to do now because there's, there's so much just so many interesting aspects of like different signals about different kinds of disease that are all novel. And there are whole novel sections that we have to just like put down and not look at because there's like a finite amount of time and focus on the ones to do with like cardiovascular disease and the ones that drive our like yeah. partnerships. And like, I have a conversation with someone this morning asking about, you know, uh, vomiting and uh, anesis, like, you know, uh, nausea and vomiting. Um, and I said, you know, I haven't, we haven't looked at any of that data yet. It's not one of our like core priorities yet, but there's just a huge wealth of it that I could go yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so restricting yourself from doing that is a, so, so which rabbit hole do you go down like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy but i guess that's also just like the immense opportunity of this technology like you, you are creating the platform you're creating the the environment the landscape for this to, to go out and then you're proving that it can be done in the cardiovascular therapy area um whilst also researching in, in different areas um i guess if you look at like um that's just something that i've just thought about whilst we've been chatting the area of security on this as well 
this getting in the hands of the wrong person and somebody else, you know, getting it, controlling the device it could be a tricky situation. So how has that be, how is that considered? Yeah, I mean, so we we sort of have a um, we have an advantage in that we're not trying to adopt in like a legacy system, right? Like when you try and make you try and take some electronics that were made in the '90s, like 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 so existing neuromodulation devices. You know, there's there's like the the famous example that Dick Cheney had the Bluetooth in his pacemaker turned off because he didn't want anyone to hack it, right? Um, so uh, if you take old old pacemakers from the 90s, that underlying um, electrical engineering, and try and use it for like a, um, a new application and give it you know, modern Bluetooth. It, like security was never baked into that system at the start because they, they weren't really thinking about cybersecurity and they definitely weren't thinking about cybersecurity in terms of, I mean, GDPR didn't exist, obviously. Yeah. Of like people owning their personal data didn't exist. Um, and so using one of those, like trying to take an old legacy system and use it for a new application, you run into loads of those problems. If you start now and consider it from the start, there are really, really good ways of baking in incredibly good like device security, right? Like, you know, the, the kind of technology that's in your passport where you have a hardware chip inside the passport that you have that has like a hard code on it and you have to know you have to be able to comms with exactly that chip and that never changes right like those kinds of like oh. modern hardware security are available when you're starting from well this is what this technology should be this is what we should do with this as a system i'm going to take the uh, i'm going to take the long-term vision of this type of technology and where it can go rather than trying to adopt a legacy system um, means that you can really bake that stuff in from like the lowest level of design at the start. And, um, and when you do that, like the, you know, the, the sort of modern IOT security of edge chips, then, then it is, can be is incredibly good. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you think long-term though, if you look at like in 15 years time as, as um, I don't know, attacks change on how they're on, on, on tech, do you think that could be like a long-term I don't know, like threat, the right word to, to say about this technology? Like if you have to then go rebuild it again or, or stuff like that, how have you considered that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but like the, the, people that, the people that do this now are obviously consider, like they're always considering the, like the way attack, like they call them attack surfaces will evolve right. in the future, right? Like how is there a new way of interacting with that? And, and really what tends to be the answer is people go like, well, like you could like they call it like air gap right it's like it's like when you like cold store crypto you go put it on a device and the device is just not internet connected right and it's like it doesn't matter that you've like, like you don't you just solve that problem at a really basic level by just not letting it talk to by like you know just separate yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? you create a physical barrier where there isn't yeah. a connection to to a remote device um and so uh you know the people that are designing these like if you if you when you go buy a new electronics chip and you say like what level of like security do i want built into it and you say i want like the highest tier you know the, the people that have designed that have designed that with some like mind to what are going to be the future attack surfaces and yeah. uh, and, and often the results of those look like doing things where you create these like fundamental hardware pairing keys that have to happen yeah. and you know and those people are considering what happens when quantum computing can search you know, a trillion different hash key pairs instantly and all that kind of, they, they are experts in that area and are considering those kind of problems. 
um, into the chips that are designed now, because because this is a problem in this is something that needs to be solved and is being solved in every industry, not just yeah, uh, like not just medical. So um, uh, yeah, like the, the 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 real state of the art stuff now, the people that the people that are experts in it will tell you it considers those things. And yeah, 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 yeah. really, yeah. The best I can go on at the moment, but I, I, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because um, it's something I just thought of during this conversation about like that could be quite tricky, um, a tricky situation. But then again, if you look at the chips that are being used for like autonomous driving or you know autopilot, exactly. it's the same. It's the same situation, same challenges that they all face. Uh, they're all they're all actually life or death situations. <laughs> so, yeah. and if yeah, someone that's... is a very anxious flyer, I would <laughs> rather know <laughs> that my plane's not going to get hacked. Yeah, there are there are lots of uh, you know. There are lots of safety critical industries, medical being one of them, and the um, those kinds of like future, what are the future problems are considered in those state-of-the-art chips. And, and if, if those things run into problems, then all passports are going to run into problems and people will come up with new versions of things. But, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But just on that then, it's interest, interesting that you said that obviously you, you build it all from scratch all the way up. Um, so I guess being a, a CSO and a co-founder, coming out of academia, building a product uh, on the ground up that's gone into clinical trials now, I think as well. So what, what were the major challenges and what are the major successes that you found and what have you maybe learned as well? So three questions there, sorry for bombarding you on that piece. Uh, I mean, so yeah, our, our, like, our remote systems are in clinical usage, our implanted systems are, are not yet in clinical usage, they will be um, reasonably soon. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in that, I get to work with a group of people who are all more excellent at what they do than I could ever have been. Um, that's why we hired them. Um, <laughs> and, and, and for me, that's just um, uh, people who are extreme experts in machine learning or in, you know, uh, embedded medical software or in, um, uh, or in you know, drug development or, or whatever the area is. Um, are sort of have, have coalesced around what we're doing in BIOS and, and, have, and have joined to work on this like very interesting problem um, and this sort of fundamentally new technology area. And uh, I, I care about it innately, which is why I started the company. And so I, I, I'm incredibly lucky that I get the reward of seeing all these really fantastic people work really hard on a problem that I care a lot about, which is um, the thing I find the most amazing. Um, but uh, I mean, you sort of say, you know, what have you learned? Like something was just to, you know, go hire those people that are experts and, and give give them their area, right? Like I'm not I'm not an expert on medical. I wasn't an expert on medical regulation. I've had to learn a huge amount about it. I'm like I wasn't an expert on machine learning specifically. My co-founder was. Um, but by, you know, by when you when you take a really motivating problem and you can hire really expert, like truly, truly professor level expert people in those areas. And then like put them in a put them in a room together and, and give them a whiteboard or 27, then like that's when magic happens and you sort of you end up just facilitating and enabling that. And so I, I think I've um uh I've I've learned I've learned that. And then the on the other side, the sort of the outward facing side, um I've learned the extent to which this kind of technology get I like I always thought this would be obviously useful in you know, um, like the obvious, really obvious areas like you know, amputation and cardiovascular disease, but, um, and, you know, movement disorders are the, you know, the obvious thing to do with the nervous system. Um, but I, I've, 
I've sort of learned, I've had, you know, very experienced career scientists in, you know, big pharmaceutical companies um, be like, oh, wow, I can, like, this solves a problem I've been having with my development of my molecule for, you know, diabetes or development of my molecule for um, bladder control. And, and I've, um, I've learned through those people and the way they've seen the technology we're developing yeah. in areas that I never saw. And that has been, um, yeah, that to me has been like, like just seeing people who have just come from somewhere entirely else. And as like a, not, not even joining bars, but like just a sort of external partner through conversations with yeah. them being like, Hey, this is the kind of thing we do. They're like, Oh, I want to use that for this. I'm like, Oh, I never thought of yeah. wound healing, but oh, look at wound healing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Wound healing, cancer, every, everything. Yeah. So would you say that was the biggest surprise as well on, on, during this journey, the different amazing application areas you could look into? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of always worth doing, even if it was just cardiovascular disease, right? Yeah. Because it's 30% of deaths. That was always, that was always, that was always like a, a great reason to do it anyway. Um, mm. but the, yeah, the extent of the extent of its breadth and the extent of the, um, just the, the physiological reach of the nervous system and hence its implication on so many different disorders is, um, yeah, it's just astonishing. Yeah. And could you attach this to mental health as well? Yeah, and the, it, it, there's already an approved, the vagus nerve I mentioned earlier, there's already an approved vagus nerve stimulator for depression. Mm. Uh, and it's been used sort of off-label for migraine, chronic migraine and anxiety. Yeah. Um, you know, we're working, we're sort of working with a partner on anxiety at the moment in that area. Um, the So those kinds of neurological conditions where... I mean, for instance, in migraine, what you see just before migraine, you see this effect called cortical spreading depression. Not, not that's not depression in the, um, the sort of mental health context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depression in like the literal use of that word. But what you see is yeah. like across the cortex, you see electrical activity go down, right? Um, and when people apply electrical signals to parts of that cortex, they're starting to show in some clinical trials. Some of these are non-invasive. Some of these are invasive devices that you can. Uh, see that as it starts to happen, change it and prevent a migraine. And so, um, yeah, in, uh, in, in lots of huge numbers of neurological and mental health conditions, this, this, these, some of these technologies end up being very powerful. As I said, yeah. it's, already, it's already an approved and prescribed device in depression. Yeah, oh, interesting. So just before we finish, what does like the next 12 months next three years next, next five years i don't, probably can't think of next five years but for bars because it could be crazy right it could go in different directions but what does the immediate and the, the short the, the, the medium term future look like yeah so the the immediate term um is to you know start turn our turn our cardiovascular therapeutics into clinical um clinical trials like we'll be that we're, we're sort of doing that transition at the moment of um, embodying the version that will be used as that first clinical version, like for those those, those first year users um, of our sort of uh, AI um, stimulation therapeutic technology, um, that's going to be super exciting. It'll be the, it'll be the first time we've that anyone's put um, an AI algorithm around the way a stimulation is applied in a clinical setting. Mm. Uh, uh, so yeah, super excited about that. Like to turn our own therapeutics into a clinical program from a preclinical program and um start you know really bringing in we've got a couple of projects that you know are soon to start maybe not in the next 
we won't we won't be pushing out results in the next 12 months but in the sort of next 18 to 24 months um we'll start being able to i think publish really high quality results of usage of this technology area uh like you know machine learning decoded neural biomarkers in other diseases with um you know big 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 pharma and device partners that are you know investing their own hundreds of millions of dollars in in therapeutics in a specific area that that will use technology and will have um uh really really cool results i think we've got some really cool projects in plan hopefully it will you know science works out um there's always science, <laughs> science to do but you know hopefully the science works out and we get um uh, some really interesting results in in those other disease areas that um yeah yeah we'll see yeah no so fingers crossed for the next 18 24 months it'd be exciting to see as they, as they come through um it's, you know, a big it's, time for, Go it's a big time for neurotechnology generally you know we're seeing um we're seeing mega funding rounds from uh from you know from some from everyone from Neuralink to Paradromics yeah. and various other companies that are doing you know um getting big funding rounds in this space with there's really exciting clinical trials happening in inflammation and um hypertension and in um you know some other uh, and a couple of other diseases yeah. um and i think by us bringing the uh machine learning and ai aspect of that to um to both new diseases and some of the existing you know big elephants of um is going to be it's going to be a really exciting time for bias and partly because it's going to be a really exciting time for neurotechnology showing it's yeah. what it can do in the world yeah no you're definitely right and we have conversations um more within neurotechnology than we have done before yeah um you know it's some great companies in spain some great companies in the benlux uh region that are doing some super cool stuff um so yeah not only bias but it'd be super yeah. cool to see, see what else happens in that space but I absolutely love speaking to you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. If anyone wants to follow up, anyone's got any questions or anything they want to discuss with you, what's the best way to, to reach out to you, to Oliver? Uh, you can reach out to, yeah, um, to buy us through our website. There's a contact us form. Um, yeah, or, or sort of generally um, in, just email info at bios.health. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's, um, uh, this is a technology area Someone said to me the other day, someone we hired, he said, you know, it's, I really want to join because it's a technology area that's never going away. So like, <laughs> the new technology that's coming into the world right now, and this is the time when it's coming in, and it's never going anywhere. It's never, it's never, it's never going to go away. There's never going to be a time when we're not going to do neural interfaces of some description. So, yeah. um, so that makes it an exciting time to go work in it, right? It's genomics of yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. But no, pleasure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Great to meet you today, Nick. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of LifeSite AI, the podcast series. If you would like to listen to any of the other series or episodes in this series too, then please go back and listen to them on either Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast hosting service. Alternatively, you can find out more and listen and watch to every episode on cyproglobal.com. Thank you and see you next time.